Well, hello everyone. I'm slightly concerned at where I'm standing because I might. Are we going to get feedback from the? Is, we feel like I feel like we're okay. We're all right. But if I do back into the table and fall over, um, please hold the laughter as long as you can. It's always slightly unnerving when you get a round of applause before you've come up um, and shared something because you're never quite sure then how it will go and that the pressure to live into that approval um, is there. But well, today, hopefully by now, you will have realised that it is Palm Sunday. I don't know how many um, here are wondering really what that means, um, other than clearly we'll have a lot, a lot of palms around and we, um, we wave them and run around um, the church building. And, and there's a whole heap of stuff that we do in the Western Christian world that has really good reasons behind it, but often we forget what the reasons are. Fortunately, today's passage will tell us some of those reasons. Um, so we're going to dig into that now. Um, I, I'm sorry to say that it is not a Sunday about thinking wistfully about palm-lined beaches or, uh, or walking down sunny streets lined with palm trees. Um, but why don't we read the passage for today and we'll find out a little bit more. So if, if you've got a Bible with you or you've got your phones or something like that, um, then do turn to the Gospel of Luke. So that is the account of Jesus' life written by Luke. And we're in chapter 19. And I'll continue to try and explain kind of in a long-winded way so you've got time to find it. Um, Starting at verse 28. Um, And this describes, most most Bibles have like a title, something like um, Jesus' triumphal entry um, for this passage. Uh, So let's read it now, starting from verse 28 um, in chapter 19. So after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Now those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, it's on the surface a fairly kind of standard um, passage. I mean, I always say that and then I think to myself, well, he, he did arrange like a random kind of do- donkey abduction, which is not standard in, in many people. But I, I suppose maybe you're thinking, where are all the palm trees, Adam? I thought you said this passage was about to explain something, but I didn't hear anything about palm trees in this 
Palm Sunday um, passage. Well, in fact, this, um, this event is recorded in all four of the records of Jesus' life, in all four of the Gospels. But it only actually mentions palm leaves in, in one of them, in the Gospel of John. Um, it's got a lot of richness and, and symbolism, um, and there's a lot of depth to the context of the passage here. But basically, the palm leaves um, in the different Gospels, uh, some people just, just talk about, about leaves and branches from trees around. It's all part of the same symbolism as laying down your cloaks, which they do in this passage. Um, and it's to treat Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem, as he goes along this path, it's to treat him like royalty, to say, um, we think you are the king and we're laying down this path of um, leaves or cloaks to say as much. Now, we don't have all night and there is a lot to unpack in this passage and I will therefore um, give the disclaimer that I'm definitely not going to get it all. Um, But if you're in one of our midweek groups, then you will know, uh, well hopefully you will know, and have come across the six questions that we regularly use to help unpack a Bible passage. The first three are um, the ones that I'm going to use this evening as kind of, I would say headings, but that might be um, painting it a little bit too strongly, um, themes perhaps, to unpack this, um, this passage. And, and they are, what does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about people? And what is the command to obey or the example to follow in the passage? We'll be thinking about all of those things kind of all at once, but I'm going to try and start with, with what it says about God. And I think some of the context of the story even before we get to the passage, tells us so much about God. It gives us quite an insight. So one of the great blessings about living in a country like ours is that we have such a strong history of Christianity. It it seeps into almost everything um, about our culture, whether we realise it or not. And a real blessing of that is that things like Palm Sunday, they just happen. Most people have heard of Palm Sunday, even if they haven't got a clue what that means, at least they've heard of Palm Sunday. Um, Sometimes they kind of become run-of-the-mill and we, we forget, other than the names, the significance behind it. We don't always know what we're supposed to be remembering. And in culture today, I think that we do Christmas much more than we do Easter. We, we do it better, right? We make a bigger thing of it. Everyone knows that it's Christmas. Whereas I find Easter sort of creeps up on you. And then bang, it's there. Holy Week, Palm Sunday. We've made it. Whereas you can't help but notice Easter that we do Advent so well, Lent starts and then we all give up giving things up and, and then kablamo, we're at Easter without having noticed. I mean, perhaps I'm wrong, but, but that is my observation about Easter. And, and it happens at this time of year not because it's supposed to sneak up on us and it's an easy time for us to forget. But actually, because this is the time of the year when the Passover happens. Um, And that is a Jewish festival and it's really important as Christians that we know a little of Jewish culture because the whole of our faith is based on that. So Passover, I wonder if you can um, cast your minds back to me, uh, get back to me, back with me, um, to when the Israelites are trapped in Egypt. Now, you might remember this from Ari. If you haven't read it in your Bible recently, you might have seen the film, The Prince of Egypt, where Moses is essentially asking Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, to release the Israelite people from slavery. And I'm not going to sing it, but that famous line, let my people go. Um, 
this is what we're talking about. That's what Passover is all about. You remember the plagues, the frogs, and turning the Nile red, turning it to blood. Well, the final plague, as you probably remember, was the death of all firstborns. So that's humans, that's livestock, that's everybody. All the firstborns are to die. That's the consequence of not doing what God is asking. And that is what the festival of Passover remembers. It remembers when God passes over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. When he strikes down the Egyptians but spares the Israelite houses as part of that final plague. They had to paint the blood of a lamb on their doorposts and God would spare them. This was and still is one of, if not the most important festival in the Jewish year. Much more like the way we treat Christmas in our culture. So this is a big deal. We don't always recognise that when we read this passage because that's not how our year is set up. But this is a big deal. This is the time of year. And this, in fact, is the reason that Jesus is going to Jerusalem in the story that we're reading. It's the beginning of hope in the year to come as well. Because spring is just poking through the buds. And it's remembering how God is faithful, how he comes through, how he's merciful and he spares us the judgment that perhaps we deserve. And in the Passover specifically, we are reminded that something has to die. In this case, it's a lamb. But something has to die in order for us to be spared. Something or someone has to bear the consequence of evil. But God, in his mercy, provides a way out for us. If only we'll take it. Now, in this context, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, the biggest festival of the year. He's been warned not to go. There's near enough a bounty on his head. And, and yet, even though he's threatened by the Jewish authorities, he's heading into the city anyway. Before we even get into the passage, what this tells us about God is that everything God does has significance. It all has a purpose. He never does something without significance. He's so well planned and well thought through. The moment you think, well, why did he do that? You need to stick a marker in it because at some point later, you'll see the reason. There is nothing that goes to waste in God's plan, in his economy. The Passover occurred thousands of years before Jesus was even born. And yet it occurred arguably for this moment. God's timing is perfect and nothing goes to waste. But when we dig into the passage a little, we see even more of this. Jesus has this plan uh, to use a donkey cult. We, um, we don't actually read that it's a donkey in this passage, but we know that from context and from the other records, um, from what Matthew says. It needs to be an unbroken donkey, because, uh, as in never ridden before, because that makes it fit for a king. The symbolism is, is so deep. If it wasn't, it wouldn't have anywhere near as much significance. And it needs to be a donkey because Jesus is the prince of peace. Normally when a king comes in, I mean, think about it. If um, you saw, aside from the health issues, our queen riding in on a donkey, you'd be confused. It wouldn't look grand 
It wouldn't make sense. A horse-drawn carriage, maybe, even on horseback. And traditionally, a king would arrive on a war horse to show how strong and powerful and victorious they were. But the donkey, particularly the cult of a donkey, that shows that they're a king of peace, a prince of peace, that that is what they've come to do. Now, the donkey's in just the right place at the right time. And regardless of whether that is um, because of some angelic visitation to the donkey's owners, uh, or whether God just places that thought into their mind, whether Jesus just knows, or whether actually he arranged it beforehand. It doesn't really matter. One thing doesn't make it more or less holy than another. The plan is important. The significance is important. And Jesus makes sure that it happens. I don't know about you, but I find the whole of that planning thing just super reassuring. Because even at my most well-planned, I just get countless things wrong and they're never in the right place. And I've always forgotten something or something fails. But God is just so steadfast. And he gets, he gets it all right. It all just works. Now, we know what's coming next week, right? Well, hopefully we know what's coming next week. It's Easter. Um, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to die. Sorry about that. We know also that he's going to be raised to life. But Jesus, at this point, is the only one that knows that. Everybody else is in the dark. And yet he keeps going for impending doom into Jerusalem where he knows he is going to die. He just keeps going. I know I wouldn't do that. And I don't know how many of you would, but that steadfastness and committedness and faithfulness of God, how brilliant is that? That we get that, that he's for us in that way tasting the glory of being hailed as a king on his way into the city that doesn't prevent him from allowing himself to be humiliated in the most grievous and unkingly way by being crucified on the cross just days later. This is, though, a moment of real triumph and glory and joy. That's why it's titled The Triumphal Entry in most Bibles. But... I want us to read this and really think about what's happening here. The church, we, we love this passage, this story. We, we love all of scripture, but this one we read every year, again and again, year on year. It's super important to us. We get really excited and joyful and we join in with the shouts of praise. We, we do, we rightfully walk around churches and shout Hosanna and wave palm leaves and get excited and join in with the triumphal entry of Jesus the procession of a king. And I get caught up in that as much as everyone else. But when I think about it, when I dig into it, I find myself actually profoundly sad and and quite angry. Not in like a shouty way, but in that sort of burning, stomach-churning kind of way. I suppose maybe it's um, like a guilty anger. Because we know what's about to happen. A little aside, has anyone seen the Hunger Games movies or or read the books? 
So they're set in this sort of twisted, dystopian world where a very small and disproportionately rich elite control everyone else. Um, And one of the tools they use to do that is this annual competition between districts where one contender from every district is placed into a sophisticated arena and forced to fight to the death um, until there's just one survivor. That's the price that they pay for, for peace. And the contenders called tributes become, they become like celebrities. They're, um, they're celebrated and praised in a way that's just profoundly uncomfortable, knowing that the very people praising them are going to be the ones essentially signing their death warrant in just a matter of days or, or hours. So back to the Bible, I wonder if you can see the, the parallel there. It's just a bit galling to have 2020 hindsight and to know that these people who are celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as a triumph, that this move of popular opinion will be mirrored in the space of a week by the crowd shouting for Jesus to be crucified. I find it very hard to be excited and happy and joyful about Jesus' triumphal entry knowing how shallow it seems to be when you see what happens next in the story. So I suppose, what does that tell us about people? About us, about me? We're fickle. It's not just the crowd in the Bible um, that love Jesus one minute and want him dead the next. Don't we do the same thing? I mean, perhaps we don't actually want Jesus dead, but don't we do the same thing? Isn't that the way that sin keeps a hold of our heart? I want to praise Jesus so hard today, but on Monday, I'll want to put down something of being a Christian at some point because it will become inconvenient because I'll want to do something else that's in my heart. But not only that, the king that they're celebrating is one of peace. That's the very meaning, the symbolism of that donkey. But they can't help but praise Jesus for his power. If you read in verse 37, it says they began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. They didn't really have a clue what he'd come to do, but they could praise him for all the power that they'd seen him do. And what does that tell us about us, about people, about our hearts? How often do I praise Jesus for what he does for me? day to day rather than for who he is and what he has already done the people in the past who seem to get swept up in the hope of this kind of warlike Messiah who's going to free them from Roman tyranny but they've forgotten that he's the prince of peace we only ever seem to be able to see half the picture and we get carried away with that half Um, Paul, later in the New Testament, uh, says that we see as in a a mirror dimly. That it won't be until the end, until Christ comes again, that we see everything fully. But until then, we need to invite the Spirit to open our eyes afresh. Well, I've, um, I've got pretty down in the dumps and very serious. 
But remember that I said this passage makes me feel sad and angry. Well, of course, I also do experience the joyfulness of it. It is brilliant. We do know that Christ is King. We know he's going to rise again. We know that he's victorious. I want to weep, but there's a mixture of joy and sadness there. It's not, it's not only sadness. Because we are seeing the entry of a triumphant king. And we must respond in praise. In verse 36, we see that people, they just keep spreading their cloaks on the road. They can't help themselves. It seems almost like a compulsion. Even though we have a choice, we are sort of compelled to worship Jesus. Right? It feels like it just comes out of our hearts. But to do that in a self-sacrificial way, I mean, maybe we should not call it Palm Sunday, maybe we should call it Jumper Sunday or Coat Sunday because I think that speaks much more of the gift that we give Jesus in praise when we take something of our own off and lay it at his feet and allow him to redefine that by walking on top of it. Surely that's an example to follow. However flawed we are, surely we must worship as the king arrives. Let's think about um, another command to obey or example to follow, that crazy donkey errand. How many of you would have said yes when Jesus said, go and get a donkey from a village just a little way along the way, just untie it, you know, bring it here. And if they ask, just say, the Lord needs it. Now, I don't know if that was a prearranged password and that he'd kind of, you know, had a conversation about it. Um, Jesus didn't really refer to himself that much as the Lord in, in Luke's gospel. So it's not like that everyone knows Jesus as the Lord and they'd immediately know. I mean, I'm not sure I would have gone for that. Even if I'd gone and got the donkey, I'm, I would probably have been a bit, you know, cloak and dagger about it and tried to just get it without anyone noticing. Maybe run off very quickly afterwards. But I'm not sure um, how faithful I'd have been, how obedient I'd have been. It sounds mad, but they do it and look at what Jesus does with their obedience. Um, there's a, an old hymn which has the refrain, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And it's not very really fashionable now to talk about obedience um, or trust, but actually when it comes down to it, so much of the Christian life is trusting and obeying. The final kind of command to obey or example to follow and I think what I would leave us with is my favourite line of this story out of any of the Gospels. Verse 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because of course it was pretty controversial to say that you were the king arriving. Um, and Jesus is sort of gleefully allowing these people to say what was a heresy. But he replies, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I kind of wish they'd kept quiet. How cool would that be? I don't know what that would, I don't know if we're talking like an avalanche. What, what would that be? 
So in a way, we're compelled to praise God. In a way, we have to. But we're told in Scripture, Jesus says it himself, you've got to join in because if you don't, stones will join in. Is there anything more inanimate and significance less than a stone? The gravel on your driveway. If you're not getting on it, your driveway is going to be singing for Jesus. I find that quite a challenge for the moments when I don't want to because that makes me less than a rock and not like a rock in a good way. So, this Holy Week, which we're about to enter into, let's not just get wrapped up in praising Jesus for his triumphal entry. As wonderful that is, as, as that is, let's not be the fickle people that it is in our heart to be. How will we re- resist that desire to say one thing one day and crucify Jesus the next? Where will we rebuke our hearts? But not in the way that the Pharisees demanded. And how will we work on the hypocrisy in our own lives? I can't tell you what the specifics are for you. I know what they are for me and I'm not going to tell you those either. Um, But Holy Week is um, a time for reflection. Holy means set aside, put to one side. Take what time you have this week to set aside and reflect, not only on yourself, but also on what Jesus has done. We've touched on it, but it would be foolish to not mention that, of course, the whole point of this is that just like the story of the Passover, Jesus comes and he is that lamb that allows death to pass by and not rest on us that allows if we accept his gift allows us to live forever with him and our sins the wrong things we've done the places we put ourselves first they can be forgiven and we don't therefore have to live with the consequence of them because Jesus takes that consequence for us not only that but then rises again He doesn't just die and take our punishment. But he beats it and comes back to live with us. I'm going to invite Luke and Alicia to come up. Um, Why don't we stand? The, uh, The little bit that's quoted in the middle of the passage, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest is a little section from psalm 118 which is a a praise psalm often sung by pilgrims on their way into jerusalem um, and sung of course at the entrance of the king originally and the new king the final king in this passage would you close your eyes with me i want you to um to see jesus in your mind's eye on a donkey 
he's wending his way down a path into the city of Jerusalem. And the crowds are going crazy. And you're caught up in it. You can feel in your heart this stirring desire to join in and shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Even if you don't really know what it means, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As you watch that donkey come down the winding road, say those words again. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Bear in mind what Jesus has come here to do. Bear in mind that he knows and he's doing it anyway. And that if you strip back the other crowds around you, if you're the only one there, he'd do it for you. Now, why don't we sing some worship and be more than stones as we cry out to God.